You're listening to Read, Read, Read with your host, Joanne Burrell, on the CWR Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Read, Read radio show on the CWR Talk Network. I am your host, Joanne Burrell. Thank you for tuning in today. I want to recognize the other hosts on the CWR Talk Network and encourage you to listen to their shows. As you know, my show originates from Chicago, but for our nationwide audience across the country, you can hear our show on the following digital platforms. Visit the CWRTalkNetwork.com to learn about our other hosts where we can be heard on Blog Talk, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Amazon Alexa. I am so happy to have this opportunity to be here today. The purpose of the Read, Read, Read radio show is to bring about change in our communities, to help one another to be better. But most of all, to encourage support from our communities to support one another so that we can encourage our students in underserved communities to read more. For this program to work, we are seeking assistance from colleges and universities to allow their college students to earn student service learning hours and be matched up to mentor our youth, participating in the Read, Read, Read mentoring and reading program to support our efforts here at the CWR Talk Network. We are looking for partnerships, sponsorships, and collaborations to go into our neighborhood communities worldwide to make a difference. As John 3.16 states, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can't help everyone, but those who want the help, we want to be available for them. As I stated, we are seeking partnerships to help those youth in economically challenged communities. With this new mentoring collaboration, we would like to form initiatives to coordinate with colleges and universities to mentor students in one-on-one online settings, beginning with high school students facing challenges and needing the support to succeed. Mentors will meet their mentees one hour per week online. And since the expectations of each child will vary, the job of the mentor will be to encourage positive development of the youth and young people that we are working with by sharing fun activities, having conversations around the books they are reading, helping the youth to make positive choices, and promoting high self-esteem. The mentor's job will be to help the young people define individual goals and to find ways to achieve those goals with the support of the CWR Talk Network, Read, Read, Read radio show. If you have a child 
or know of a child who seeks this type of help and want to be considered for this opportunity, please send me an email to Joanne Burrell at read, 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 the number 1619 at gmail.com. I will reply to you within two weeks of receiving your email. This show is being pre-recorded, and we will not be taking any calls this morning. If you have a question for our guest, please email the show at readreadread1619 at gmail.com. We have an exciting show today. When we come back, we will be speaking with Dr. Bert Cross and Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt. We were scheduled to have a third guest today. His name is Brandy Whittington. He's, he's really excited about doing a lot of work in the community, but he had to cancel at the last minute. So we will return with our show with our guests in the next two minutes. Thank you for being with us today. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck as a gift to Dave2037, so he can spend it on things like anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman, something cool like that. I think Dave2037 deserves it. He worked hard. What are you getting Steve2037? I guess I was thinking Steve2037 would just fend for himself. Well, all right. But don't expect to be borrowing my anti-gravity boots. You want to have money in your future? You got to start saving now. Putting some money from every paycheck into a savings account or contributing to your 401k can make a big difference later. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Hey, let's just hope Steve2037 doesn't get his hands on a cold time machine, because he is going to come back here and knock some sense into you. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. As one of the most well-known conductors of the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman rescued more than 300 slaves over the span of 11 years. Harriet Tubman was one of the most remarkable women in American history. Born a slave in the early 1820s, Araminta Ross changed her name to Harriet Tubman after marrying a free black man named John Tubman around 1844. As a slave, Harriet Tubman was repeatedly whipped. She also later was hit by a lead weight mistakenly, but that lead weight caused her to experience narcolepsy for the rest of her life. Fearing that she would be sold away from her family in 1849, Tubman fled to Philadelphia using an informal but well-organized network known as the Underground Railroad. 
she felt that she would be sold away because she was viewed as a sickly person. She and two of her brothers ran away, and the brothers decided they would return to the plantation. And she, instead of abandoning them, turned around, went back with them to the plantation, and then turned around and escaped a second time by herself. Using her own money, Tubman made separate journeys to rescue her sister and brother. And in 1851, Tubman guided a group of 11 fugitives north, earning her the nickname Moses. Harriet Tubman was called the Moses of her people, largely because she was so successful in leading slaves out of slavery, out of the South, into the North, which symbolically is known as the Promised Land. Moses, the figure from the Bible, leading his chosen people, Tubman took on that kind of mythic quality. In 1858, Tubman assisted abolitionist John Brown in recruiting men for the raid on Harper's Ferry. During the Civil War, Tubman became a Union Army scout, a nurse, and led an armed expedition to liberate more than 700 slaves. Harriet Tubman was an incredibly brave African-American woman. She sacrificed her own life, and she freed probably over a 1,000 people. And she said she could have freed a lot more if they had known they actually were slaves. Although Tubman was widely well-respected during her lifetime, she was impoverished and died of pneumonia in 1913. Tubman was buried with military honors and was later named an American hero by President Barack Obama. Harriet Tubman is one of the amazing women in history. She not only brought these slaves out, but she never lost a life. Welcome back to the Read, Read, Read radio show. I am your host, Joanne Burrell. Many advocacy efforts also recognize the wildly disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on people of color, especially African-American men, who are far more likely to be arrested and spend time behind bars. As a result, children of color are inevitably more likely to contend with having a parent in prison. One of the, the guests for our show who had to cancel. He is an example of how the power of education can change one's life. Mr. Whitting is very passionate about speaking to the youth about his experience with hope. He's an advocate for social justice and peace and believes in helping bringing a light to the plight of troubled youth through his real talk speeches. Mr. Whitting couldn't be here today, but we have Dr. Bert Cross, a minister, author, and musician, and Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt, a librarian and historian. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being on the show. Mr. Hi, Cross? Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're very passionate about helping our youth in the community. And as we were talking earlier, we're getting some feedback. So let me see if, if I could turn my phone down and see if that'll help. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. So one of the things we were talking about 
which is the topic of this radio show, how we could get our students to read more. Does someone have a bell going off? Okay. Well, I'm, this is Bert Cross. I'm clear over here. Okay. Let me do something here. Okay, Mr. Cross, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Sure. Yeah. I, I just muted my other listeners so we wouldn't get that feedback. Okay. But tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself, Mr. Cross. Well, I am um, just a little bitty country boy. I'm like I said, I'm about as country as cornbread. I was brought up in a little town in north northeast Texas, and I was able to experience racism very early on. But I was also taught about racism uh, very okay. uh, early on. I'm a musician. I've been a musician all of my life. All of my degrees are in music, except for my doctorate degree. I went to a Christian college, Bishop College, there in Dallas, Texas. I went on to get master's degree at Texas Southern and Boston University. And, of course, this last one, I have my doctorate degree in educational leadership and management. I've been a college professor uh, for 14 years, seven years at Texas Southern University and seven years at Howard University. And I have been working with young people in both capacities, both in education and in music. So that means that I have a direct uh, communication and a direct link with them because I'm concerned about the next generation of students uh, in our country today. Yes, and we need more people like you because we have so many ills in our community, but we don't have anyone specifically that we could go to similar to Martin Luther King Jr., that's ready to help our youth the way you are, the way I know that you want to help people. People don't know about you yet, but they will know. Uh, thank you. You're so kind. Uh, I Could I just make just a little, interject a little something? There are people out there that really do want to help. Remember now, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. So that means okay. that most of my constituency are uh, uh are teachers, and they bend over backwards. I know a teacher named Dr. Gladney. She actually worked with students on the weekend on her own time. I know yes. teachers that give their time, their energy. They really want the teachers to get it. But one of the things that teachers, that as teachers, as a professor at Howard University, one of the things that we were really concerned about, we had to always open up our classes by saying, we want you to learn, but we can't make you learn. We want, yes. and another thing, I have been guilty of wanting my children's success more than they want uh, their own success. And that can be very frustrating for a teacher when you put in the time and the energy in. You want these kids to be successful, but they are yes. not successful because they see something else. The biggest thing that I'm having is at Howard University, why would you pay all of those $1,000 a year uh, to come to the uh, uh, college? You come to that school, you made an audition to come to that school, you had to come in with a certain uh, grade point average, you had to come in with an SAT or, or, or a certain score, You had in, in theater you had to come in through auditions, you had to go through all of that stuff. Why would you come and go through all of that and then come to school and we have to beg you to read chapter one for a test that you're going to have on Tuesday? 
So you can see now there are some teachers out there all across the country that really, really, they give their lives for, for teachers. Some of them are born teachers. They love teaching. Teaching does not pay a lot of money, but teaching is a labor of love for most of these people. And so uh, I would like to say that we have a double problem. Uh, we keep saying we want our students to read, but now I think where you're trying, uh, what you're trying to say is how can we get the students to buy in to what reading is all about? Yes, yes. And, and let me restate what I said. Like you said, we do have other people out here that want to do help, but the purpose of this show is to get sponsorships, collaborations with colleges and universities, and anybody that wants to support this effort, we really need more people to support the efforts of the teachers and everyone else that's out here trying to help our youth and communities. So thank you for correcting me. Amen. No, it wasn't just, an, it was just an, uh, not correction as much. It was just uh, maybe another point of view that probably need to be brought out. Yes, because and what saying it another way. Do, yes, what you're doing is stellar. It's, it needs to be done. But I just wanted to make sure that our listening audience know that there are people out there that are very concerned about our students, but we've got to get the students to buy into it. And the support of the people that's trying to help the students. Because a lot of times we want to help the students. The students want the help, but for any many reasons, we just can't come together to give our students what they need. And I say that mm -hmm. because I know a lot of students that really want the help and it's just the resources are not there for them. Well, that's, a, that's, that's going to be a subject for another talk show. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. one of the questions I have for you, Dr. Cross, is what are we fighting against? to get our children to read more? Um, do we have enough time on this program today? <laughs> well, what we do we have fighting, an hour. What are we fighting against? I mean, it's probably going to take years to answer this. The reason I'm saying is you got to go back and look at America, uh, its inception, what started. And you got to remember that there was once a law against teaching black people to read. Am I, am I right? Yes, you are. Yes, you that are. That was a law. I think that we are still suffering from that. You say, "Well, wait yes, a minute. We, we have so many. Uh, uh, we have so many um, uh, uh, accomplished uh, educators and medical people and politicians and stuff that have come through the system, system since uh, eighteen sixty, since the emancipation." Sure, sure, we have. But I'm going to tell you something. They've done a re they've done a report on uh, rats. And, and what they did, they found out that if they would torment a rat at a particular a stimulus, that means uh, that rat would respond uh, uh, according to that stimulus. But what they uh -huh. found out was when that uh, mice or rat uh, uh, in the lab had other uh, children, or uh, should I say uh, baby rats, what happened was without having that, um, that same stimulus, when, when, when it was when it was exposed to the same condition, it some kind of way in its DNA, it kind of picked up the same trauma that the rat, uh, that the parent had. In other words, 
a lot of the things that we are suffering from right now, you've got to understand that uh, they're still hanging black people. That's kind of traumatic. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got to understand that the 19, at 1900, 1914, when they had the birth of a nation, six million white people joined the KKK, and they terrorized, uh. you know, throughout the South. Uh, Rosewood uh, was burned down. Uh, you've got to think about uh, uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa was burned down. Uh there is, we are some traumatic people, and if you just go to the news, uh, you don't have to go that far back. Somebody in Louisiana was drugged behind uh, a truck. Uh, here it is in 2000. Uh, you see somebody that's even been hung. Uh, and, of course, everybody knows about what the police is doing daily um, uh, to, uh, to black youth or black people, period. It's not just youth. It's men yeah. and women. So what happens is we are very stressed out and are uh, uh, traumatized generation of people. We have to deal with our present situation, and we have to deal with the perception and the bigotry and the hatred of the past. A lot of things that we're suffering from right now is the result. It's been passed down from generation from generation, and those, those people think they're better than us. Uh, they think that they're more educated than us. And they have done everything they could to put us down. And they have set up a society that has systematically made it very difficult for a black person to succeed. So every now and then you get one black person to succeed or two or three. They'll say, well, why don't you be like them? Well, they don't understand the odds of those black people being able to um, overcome the obstacles to be able to meet. That is not something that's. Uh, every uh, that's afforded to every black uh, girl and boy from K one yeah. to twelve. They're not going to have the same situation. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think you in Austin, but I live in Houston, and we have a place called Third Ward. Okay, that is kind of the, the impoverished, impoverished neighborhood. It's a, a historical black neighborhood. A lot of mm-hmm. historical markers are there, and people are there. However, it is a high rate of poverty. Uh, you know, some of the apartments, you just might as well just go in and just suspect to be shot. Uh, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, in fact, on that, it doesn't make the news when there is crime. Uh, the people can't get out. But if you go across to Sugar Land or if you go across to River Oaks, uh, you got to think about it. When the Board of Education, they pass out monies and pass out teachers and stuff, the students in Third Ward are not going to get the money that the people in River Oaks uh, uh, does it, they will get the money or the people in Sugar Land will get the money. It is still not equal in 2019. The reason that I say that, I was brought up in elementary school in the late 50s, and I remember getting books. We thought that we were getting new books. And we would open up those books, and we would see ten signatures in there. Mm. Ms. Joanne Burrow, do you understand what I am saying? The books yes. that they were giving to us at the black school, we thought they were new books. Yeah. But when we opened them up, there was at least nine or ten signatures in those books. Yeah. In other words, when the white school got new books, they would pass their old books down to us. And if you go back and do the study about what happened at Tuskegee, when uh, a lot of the times when those other uh, Alabama and all those other big schools was getting new equipment, what they would do, they would give the old equipment to the black universities. So that means uh, for George Washington Carver to come up with peanuts, yes, that's, that's genius. But how many black people are going to be able to invent stuff and become a George Washington Carver? Will they be able to get the money, the finance, and et cetera? So 
all things are not equal. So when you said, how are we going to do it? I'm going, wow, we got to overcome so much. Uh, we've got to overcome DNA. We've got to overcome fear. We've got to overcome bigotry and, and hatred from both sides. Uh, we've got to overcome, um, what is it, uh, uh, the Constitution, uh, or, or should I say the lack of the enforcement of the Constitution. Uh, when I was working at Howard University, a lady told me that she introduced me to a term, and I'm going to see if I can't ask you, have you ever heard of the term workaround? No, I haven't. It's a term you use when you are trying to do everything you can and everybody's coming up against you, but you are determined to succeed, so you have to find another way, and it's called a workaround. I you do have it to often. work around your problems and your people. Yes, I do it often. I just didn't know there was a term for it, but I there do was it a often. term. There is a term called a workaround. Sometimes you'll have to go and go through other things. Now, for years and years, the church... And the community has been the backbone of the, of the black community. And so what happens is once you start destroying the backbone of the black community, and you think about the five little girls that was burned up yes. uh, in the late 50s. Remember that? And the bombed yes. in the church. Remember churches yes. started being put on fire. Okay, first of all, you start with the family. And I think it started back in the 1800s when, when the Willie Lynch, or 1716 or something, 1711, something when the Willie Lynch letter was written and it was talking about how to make a slave. So if yes. you take a horse and if you put it on, uh, on, the, on the slave and you put him on one side and put another horse on the other side of him and you tie their arms up to both opposing horses and beat those horses until they pull the arm socket out of the black person in front of the entire slave community, what do you think the mother is going to tell her son? To anything that masters say, you do that. So yes. pretty soon you've got a whole generation that is so fearful for anything that masters says that you have to, you know, you, you have to do it. You think about it. When they've got those signs that says colored. When I was a little kid, I saw a sign that says colored and white. We're talking about a drinking fountain. They're both connected by the same pipe or, the, you know, the same tube. Why would somebody think, Work drinking out of a fountain 10 feet away would be different when they both got the same water supply, but somebody's got some hatred there, and they don't want to have anything to do with black people. Well, black people, they learned how to drink and be able to walk on the wrong side of, a, of, a, of the sidewalk. If you see a white woman come, oh, hold your head down when you talk to a white man. They were systematically trained into that. And all of a sudden, it, that just carried right down until, oh, about the 40s and the 50s, uh, for most part, for most people. Of course, we had some radical people that was fighting that, and they gave their life. But I'm talking about the general public, the public, public and the population. Most of these people kind of just caved into these rules. You want us to have black schools? Okay, we're going to have black schools. And that's why it was such a big deal when integration came in. They had accepted the other black schools, and so we want to be there. And so then the white school and integration, big deal about that. So my uncle was a postman in Greenville, Texas, and he told me that when they integrated the post office in the 50s, personal, he told me he was the first black mail carrier. He told me personally that he got death threats, death threats.
because the white people said they didn't even want a black person to bring the mail to their house. Yeah. So you can and see now that we've got people that are very into a system. So it's kind of like we don't have enough time to go into what we need to do from going all the way back to 1600s up to the day to talk about what we need to do. I think the better question is now, what can we do to support programs like yours that's trying to get the youth of today who don't have that same baggage? Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree with you because that's really a struggle in our communities. Our kids don't want to read. They don't want to go to school, um, and and not because they don't want to. They have a lot of obstacles before them, just as you mentioned. It's so much that we have to fight against, and we have to work around, like you just stated. We need to work around these things that we're fighting against to be able to help ourselves. And another question I have for you, because we have to move along, because time, and we could talk about this all day. What books would you suggest students read to broaden their view of the world? Oh, now, uh, can I? And it could be one of your books. Well, but can I preface that by saying, uh, going back to uh, when you introduced me, can I give you my qualifications? One of them is I'm a minister. So that means I believe in God. So all you non-believers, y'all just get over it. Um, I have my rights too, and I happen to believe in God. Okay, um, so the first thing that I'm going to say, of course, is I believe that everybody should read the Holy Bible. And the reason mm-hmm. why I say that is because the Constitution and everything is based off of biblical principles. Uh, not okay. only in this country, but there's a whole lot of countries that based uh, things off of, uh, you know, they picked a, a few things out of there. Uh, sure, they, they're going to have a God and they serve idol gods and stuff like that. But for mm-hmm. the most thing, like, uh, you know, a day of rest, of Sabbath, most people are going to have that. Uh, adultery, you know, that that is punishable, punishable or perjury and lying, you know. That's punishable mm-hmm. in the courts. Of course, murder and theft to stealing, you know. So they picked out the, 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 a few of the commandments uh, that, that they used to, to formulate their countries and their constitutions and ordinances. So I'm going to definitely say the Bible. It has an influence. It's got a positive message. Uh, it also uh, teaches temperance. It also gives a person hope to let them know, I don't care what goes on on this earth. One of these days, something is going to happen if you uh, meet the qualifications uh, for righteousness, uh, you can escape uh, uh, the eternal doom, which is to come. So uh, first, I'm going to definitely go with the Bible uh, because it gives training on how a person should act, uh, what they should do uh, when it comes to adversity, how you should, it says, love your enemies. And that's a struggle for a lot of people, including me. Um, you get what I'm saying? We have a tendency of wanting to retaliate when people mm-hmm. do us wrong, but we've got to have faith to understand what that word says. The number two book that I think that uh, that I made my students read in college, uh, both Texas Southern, I didn't do it at um, uh, Howard as much because once I got there in jazz, we were so busy because the school is one of the premier schools in the in the country, and we only had a limited amount of time uh, to get such a vast amount of information into them. But when I was at Texas Southern for seven years, I always made it a requirement for every class, regardless of what that class was, that that class had to read the miseducation of the Negro. Okay. Uh, that that was a staple for me. So 
I would say number two that everybody, I think all black people should be required before they get their driver's license to read the miseducation of the Negro. I think that would that would open up the eyes of many people. The third thing is, I think that all black people before uh, 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 before they get married or before they get a house or apartment, anything, they would have to read the book, the Willie, they read the letter, the Willie Lynch letter. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, mm-hmm. but I, have I am. And, stuff, and, and I have heard people with degrees and, and, and political uh, people that say they don't believe that the Willie Lynch letter is really actually real. So what I propose to them is I say, well, why don't you go through and come up with a list of everything that Willie Lynch said that would happen if, if you implemented certain things and what it would do to the slave. And why don't you write those down? And why don't you write his statement down, if you implement these things properly, the black people themselves would perpetually carry them on. Perpetually means from generation to generation. So what you need to understand is if you go back and you look, find out what he said, what happened, and you check to see what black people are doing in 2019, you will see us following a blueprint for the Willie Lynch letter in 17, I think it's 17 and 11. So I think everybody should at least know something about I think all black people should know about the Willie Lynch letter. And, of course, I think the next thing that black people should know is the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Uh, you can't do anything if you don't know uh, your rights. And, and, and I think uh, some people, they don't even know how to spell the word Constitution, and so they don't even know their own rights. So, of course, the only rights they know is what they've seen on TV when the police taking everybody to jail. You know, you have a right to lawyer. They, they know that one is because yeah. it's associated with crime. It's associated with crime. And black people are always, for most people, not all of us, many of us, uh, we like that crime element. You get what I'm saying? We're either yeah. in gangs or going to jail or doing something that would, you know, so not all of us, but many, we have a large percentage of our people that's involved in that crime element. So what I'm saying is that most people still, uh, I saw them do something on TV the other night. Uh, I mean, I'm able to see education and everything. And they was able to ask people on the beach. I don't know if you saw that, Miss Joanne. They was asking people, do you know uh, or, or anything about the Confederate War? And they were asking people from college campuses, USC, did anybody else see that? And a lot of the people did not, the students did not even know about the Confederate the war. They thought it was something that was from another country. Somebody was oh. asking something about what state is the Statue of Liberty in. I mean, they just, they go to school, they've learned their particular sociology or basket weaving or whatever, but but they don't know basic and I'm not talking about just black people. At this particular time, it's this young generation. So what I'm saying is for black people, we need to read who's doing what, who did what for us. That was the purpose for me writing my last musical that uh, Howard University is interested in right now. It's called um, I Lift My Voice for the Future. Because if we don't understand what happened in the past and what slavery is, what it does, we won't recognize slavery in 2019 when it's happening right under our very nose. Yes. So those and, are my four books. And with you saying that, I um, mentored some young people uh, a couple of years ago, and we had a Black History Book Club. And I had a book that 
they were reading. Um, and the book took the students from slavery to civil rights. And it was called the Montgomery Bus Boycott. And it took students from slavery to civil rights. And we would go through a few passages each day that we met. And one day we was reading it and one of the students said, do we have to read this again? So I ended up doing a play with the students called A Voice from the Past for the Future. And they acted in this play and I had even some parents to say uh, for some of the parts was the kids had to be slaves because it was Harriet Tubman and it was a reenactment of her trying to free the slaves. And and I told one of the parents that her student was going to be a slave. And she said, did her child want to be a slave? I said, it was just the part that was available. They wanted to participate in the play. So the students are having a hard time learning about their history because that's not something that's usually done. And it's hard for them to take. But then you also have parents who's not teaching their children about their history and it's making it hard for their students to learn. But let's take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to discuss this more and we're going to bring in our other guest, Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt. We're going to take a break and be right back. Hi, my name is Matthew Pinsker. I'm a historian and here are some things you need to know to sound smart about the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the one that guaranteed women the right to vote, was ratified in 1920. But the truth is women had been voting in American elections for long before that. In the early years of the Republic, for example, there were some places where women voted, in the state of New Jersey until 1807. But in most cases, women were denied the right to vote in the 19th century. They started agitating for the right to vote openly and in public in the late 1840s and early 1850s after meetings in places like Seneca Falls in New York. During the Civil War period, women were involved in the fight against slavery and the fight to save the Union. After the Civil War, leaders like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony thought that their fight to end slavery would get them included in the amendments like the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment that guaranteed the rights to former slaves, and they lost. It was a devastating blow to their cause. And so they reorganized themselves in a long campaign for suffrage. Sometimes they did this on a state-by-state -state or territory-by-territory -territory basis, especially effective out west. Then there were women led by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Sten who organized the National Woman's Suffrage Association. They were fighting to change the Constitution. Sometimes they fought in the courts. They actually tried to vote. Susan B. Anthony got herself arrested at one point doing that. Ultimately, these fights converged at the beginning of the 20th century and during the era of World War I. There was a serious campaign to try to change the Constitution. They had what they called silent sentinels posted outside the White House with protest signs. Those silent sentinels were arrested by municipal authorities and imprisoned. It was uh, a stark moment in the history of women's rights, women being imprisoned and in some cases force-fed eventually Women gained the right to vote in states like New York. They convinced Woodrow Wilson to support women's suffrage. And finally, by 1919, the Congress had endorsed, after much struggle, this proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And women began voting wholesale across the country 
in the presidential election of 1920. Sojourner Truth was born around 1797 in Ulster County, New York. Originally named Isabella Bomfrey, Truth was sold at 11 years old along with a flock of sheep for $100. Sojourner Truth wrote about her life as a child in slavery and she talked about experiencing sexual abuse and continued beatings and whippings by her slave owner. Sojourner Truth was born around 1797 in Ulster County, New York. Originally named Isabella Bomfrey, Truth was sold at 11 years old along with a flock of sheep for $100. Sojourner Truth wrote about her life as a child in slavery and she talked about experiencing sexual abuse and continued beatings and whippings by her slave owner. Truth fled her master in 1826, one year before the abolition of slavery in New York and eventually became a freed slave. After Truth became a free woman, she had the courage to go to court to challenge the legality of her son being sold into slavery. She was successful against so many odds, which is what makes that court case so amazing. Inspired by religion, she changed her name to Sojourner Truth in 1843. The following year, she joined forces with abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison. Sojourner Truth became a traveling preacher, but also she was an early women's rights advocate, and so she spoke very forcefully for that as well. In 1850, she published her memoirs, and the following year, Truth delivered her famous speech at the Ohio Women's Rights Convention. The speech was later retitled, Ain't I a Woman? And it was so powerful, in part because it talked about the equality of work that was executed by black people in general, that people who were free and unfree worked just as hard whether they were men or women. Following the outbreak of the Civil War, Truth recruited troops for the Union Army and met with President Lincoln in 1864, who gave her permission to become a counselor at Freedman's Village. Sojourner Truth made a singular contribution during the Civil War. She agitated for black people to be able to fight for their own freedom. Truth continued to campaign for abolition and women's rights until her death on November 26, 1883. In 2009, a statue of Sojourner Truth was unveiled at the U.S. Capitol, commemorating her legacy. Sojourner Truth was one of the gutsiest women in American history, black or white. Welcome back to Read, Read, Read with your host, Joanne Burrell on the CWR Talk Network. your narrative shared with us. I really appreciate uh, what you've said on this radio show 
and we're going to come back to you to talk about what it is that you're doing and what it is that we can support. But now we're going to speak with our other guest, librarian and historian, Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt. Mr. Hunt is a historian in his own right. Growing up in Coloco, Tennessee, Mr. Wynn saw the importance in getting involved in helping his community. He has been a paid member of the NAACP for 52 years. I will let Mr. Wynn tell you that story of becoming a member of the NAACP and many other organizations geared toward helping black people improve their circumstances amidst turmoil of segregation and the fight for civil rights. Thank you, Mr. Perry Wynn, for being here and being a guest on the Read Read Radio Show. Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt, are you there? Did you mute him? It looks like I lost him. Well, let's continue to talk. We'll come back and maybe... Maybe he'll call back. It looked like he may have lost his connection. Okay. But tell tell us, Dr. Cross, what is it that you're working on right now and your book and your music? Uh, well, I'm working on a number of things. I'm working on three books at the same time. Uh, that is, that's a challenge. But what happens, uh, how I got to that stage is that I have a lot to say. Once I finish my doctorate degree uh, in May, of course, uh, you know, the last 11 years I've been doing studies for that. So once I finish uh, my doctorate degree, it, it, it freed me up to start uh, doing some of the things that, that were on my heart and on my mind and some of the things that I was called to do. At present, uh, I think in about a week, uh, about a week from now, we're going to be releasing my new book as for okay. church musicians and singles, singers and it's entitled, You Don't Know Who You Are. Uh, I just finished a book two years ago. It was called They Speak to Me, which was about, uh, it was the voices from the past. I go all the way back to Africa and try to come up with African thought and see if I can't bring it across the transatlantic trade route and bring it uh, into America and so people could still be able to hear those voices and if they could, if we could stand on those voices now so we wouldn't make the same mistakes in the future. Uh, I'm trying to, to get somebody to really pick up on that book, but you know, whatever. I'm I'm still gonna uh, uh, I'm, I'm still gonna be able uh, to uh, try to go on some book tours and still push it. I am a producer. I'm working on my my CD. I've been working on it for a long time. But when you're in the doctoral program, you had to put a whole lot of things on hold, especially if you're a father and a husband. Uh, that the music thing just wasn't there. Now that I'm freed up from the doctorate degree, uh, I'm getting back um, uh, on that. I'm working on a one-man show. Uh, it's a musical drama. There's, there's usually just me that's in it with a lot of acting, a lot of singing. Uh, I'm going to try to have it out by the end of the, uh, the year. Uh, it's a musical. It's entitled People Let Old Pharaoh Go. So I stay pretty, pretty busy. But even while I'm staying busy, you've got to understand I am an educator. 
and I am concerned about the the plight of black people. And I have a wife who works at a, a charter Christian school, and, of course, she tells me horror stories every day. That happens uh, in the school system just in the, in the third ward. So I am not removed from the education, and she's like me. We would like the, the people to read. And like I said, I, I asked you, you Miss Joanne, last night to fill in the blank. Uh, it, I don't know who came up with it, but it seems to be true. Uh, if you want to hide something from a black man, would you fill in the rest? Put it in a book. Put it in a book. I don't know who came up with that, uh, but it's something about that reading. Uh, you asked when we had our little talk on yes, yesterday, and I was just so blessed and thrilled to be able to meet and chat with you. And you asked me uh, one of the questions, you know, about what is it, what is five things that we could do? You know, what is it we could do to make students read? It was absolutely mm-hmm. amazing when I hung up the phone what I was able to think about. The importance of reading and the power in that, and if it's so important and so powerful, why why aren't our young people from K through 12, why aren't they as in mass? Of course, we have a few worms and, you know, some smart people and uh, et cetera, but I'm talking about as a general rule, why is reading something in, in novels and books and stuff is something that they, I, I really put some thought into that. I'd even like to ask you, what, what do you think about that, Ms. Joanne, why people uh, are not uh, reading now? What, is, what, is, what, what would you think some of the reasons are, and how could we fix that? There are many reasons, and one of the ways I think we can fix it is to support this program and helping us to get started with the Read, Read, Read program because it will engage students on a weekly basis with a mentor, someone that will be encouraging to them, someone that they will look forward to meeting with every week, and someone who will be able to engage them in what they need to want to read more. It would be someone that would take an interest in them and knowing what it is that they like to, what they like to read about, what their interests are, and what they want to do in the future. And we don't really have that for our students. Everything is moving so fast. We have students, in, as well as adults, in their phones, in their computers, in their video games. And it, the world is just a different place. And it's not really a space for our children to read and sit down with the book or have someone that's interested in them. Because many of their parents, they don't have a lot of time to spend with their kids, and the day just goes so fast, even in schools. They have so many students, the teachers do, that they can't get to everybody. And everything is just moving so fast. So if we could create a space that would allow students to be able to read and enjoy reading, and enjoy that time to read, it can make a difference. But without the support from the people that's hearing our voices, it's going to be hard to start. And that's why I do this radio show, is to garner support 
for these activities for our youth. We need a space for them to go in the community where they could read and where they could have a meal and where they could congregate and talk to one another. Uh, it's, those are some of the things I think we can do. But it looked like well, Mr. Perry you- Wynn is hunt. Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt is back. But we're going to talk some more about that. I want to give Mr. Uh, Hunt a chance to speak about what he came here to speak about today, and that is the museum. Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt, are you there? Yes, I'm here, uh, Joanne. Glad you was able to come back. You you kind of scared us because you went away. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I had uh, I heard everything uh, Dr. Carl said, and I was uh, and all of a sudden I, I got cut off some kind of way. I don't know what happened, you know, down here. Well, in tell the, us about the, the museum that you're working okay, on in, uh, in, in Tennessee. I have hoped to start a, a geoscience uh, museum, and why I came up with that, uh, my first cousin uh, in Florida. She she done research on our family history, and she, and we never knew what my dad had done in the military. But when uh when when she done research on him, and I went back and got his military record, and he was in the mining, and and then I kind of figured out what it was where he was stationed at, why we figured out uh how how the mining was. First of all, he took uh. He took base at Camp Paris, and from there, he went to uh, Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania, and that's in the Cumberland Valley where they do mining. You know, uh, you know near Pittsburgh and Harrisburg, and mm-hmm. um, so they done they done mining there, and then after after he was stationed there, he went to uh, Hampton Road uh, in Virginia where they over there where the Navy makes ships and stuff. And and it it kept coming back to me then. I said, oh, okay, that's what he done. And um, so I was looking at a um, valley where I, near where I live at where the Union soldiers make out of the saltpeter out of the cave, they make ammunition for the Civil War. So the area is, is just is unturched. It's, it's not even known. It's just in the... Western Highland Rim area of Tennessee, southern uh, middle of Tennessee, and and that that came up to me. An idea said we might as well just work with the people in that community and bring history out. So we we doing the history with the kids about stone and working in rocks and soot and and water. The water is important. So where the water come from? And if you if you uh, contaminate, it can become co- contaminated by stuff like uh, phosphate that they dug for phosphate in this area. So mm-hmm. it's important to check the water. So having a museum, so you're gonna really have the people understand about safe drinking water, and and that's very important. And and so. Uh, and how is it that we can help you? to establish this museum because that's what this show is about gaining support for the projects that needed in our communities to give our kids a different perspective on life well young people that's interested in in rocks 
and uh, working in uh, about the manning and the safety of manning and stuff and and stuff of that nature. Uh, I like to set up some studies on that where kids, young children can come in and study rocks and have projects that dealing with rock uh, mm-hmm. formation. And um, and this is something that they can learn about you your your own self, the history and the body of human being. You know, like you know what 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 God created out of nature, what nature is, and and how he he created for us all to use everything. He created everything for us to use. There's there's things come out of the water. You know, like. I mean, out of the mountains and stuff like uh, water, uh, you know, clean water, you know, it's come mm-hmm. from underground. And the safety of um, of just protection, I, I mean, everything, the, the, the mountains and God put everything here for a reason to, to keep us safe and protected. We just got to, we just got to figure it out. And like Dr. Cross said, we got to read that Bible and it's answers for everything in our life is there. And and we look at nature like that and we just take the 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 geoscience that's out there and we we don't try to reinvent the wheel but we we improve on it. Well, you know, I do have a student that's interested in studying the rocks and the land. So you really want young people to get involved with establishing this museum? Oh yes, definitely, um, definitely. It could be a, a a nationwide project. What's already there? I know Geoscience is they got a Geoscience Museum at Virginia Tech, and um, and all over the country they got you know Geoscience because working with rocks from and everything in the mountain. And, um, yeah, I, I would like to do that nationwide and, and reach out to the teachers and the schools and, and see what they're doing about geology. And, you know, what what are, what are they doing in that department and set up somewhere a work study can go on during the summertime when school's out, and and it could be real rewarding to – we all could learn a lot from the youth because they would be doing the research and and um, I think they so, can do it. So, again, that's what this show is about. And if this is something that if you're listening to our voices and if this is something you could support us with or if you have more questions for our guests, this show is being pre-recorded. But you could email me at the read 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 one six one nine at gmail dot com. We want you to get involved. We need your support because we can't do this by ourselves and we can't do this without financial help. So we're looking for as much support as we can get. And I'm gonna give you my email address again. If you have any questions for our guests, or if you have ways of supporting our projects, please email me at readreadread read, read 
gmail.com. Thank you so much, Mr. Perry Wynn, for being here on the Read, Read, Read radio show. And we will continue to keep up with you because we're all working together for this same effort of helping our kids. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And Mr. and Dr. Cross, we want to come yes. back to you because you have a book coming out. You have music coming out. And could could you just uh, give us some last words? I know I cut you off earlier. Give us some last words of what you would like the people to know about you and how to support you. Hmm, interesting. Oh, okay. Um, yes, I, I am. Uh, I was just thinking about the person. I'm trying to be a good listener to make sure that I can get the the questions in to answer everything that you said. The biggest thing that I would like everybody to know that I'm serious. I was a um, a a of a black of a black man that was this in America that have been able to firsthand uh, uh, experience racism and bigotry and hatred in this country. I, w- I went to a junior high school uh, where they had, and a senior high school where the fight zone was Dixie, and it wasn't but three of us in the band. And so I've been threatened by black people to get out of the band, but I really wanted to be in music so bad, and I wanted to get a scholarship. Uh, and I've j- I could just tell you uh, the hatred on both sides. I could tell you things, uh, stories that would um, that would curl your hair. But at this age in my life, when you get to 60s, you start looking at now what can I leave. Uh, for young people, I would like to to leave for people for people to be able to understand when I write my autobiography that I never did give up, um, even with a speech impediment, uh, a learning disorder, or ADHD. I always thought I was dumb until I was fifty. Um, I would just say, uh, once you get a dream, never give up. Never let anybody. Uh, tell you that you can't do something, and I'm not talking about if you got one wing and you want to try to fly as a bird. I'm not, I'm not talking about ridiculous stuff. But if you have, if if you have a goal or something that's usually burning on the inside of you, it's usually an indication what God has put you on this earth to do. In my particular case, it was music. So I've been doing music. All of my life, I started playing drums in the church at five years old, and right now here I am in my 60s, and I still produce. I have a lot of music equipment. Uh, I have a lot of musical friends. I have musical degrees. I'm doing music for the Lord. Uh, I do music in church. I wrote a musical book uh, that is about to come out in about a week, and it's called uh, You Don't Know Who You Are by Being Church Musicians and Singers. Uh, and, and just to give you an overview of that, God gave me the revelation that there was music. God created music before he created the earth. If you go back and you study your Bible, you'll find out that there was angels and music and worship and heaven before there was the earth. And then God created man. And then once that man is going, uh, once the earth, heaven and the earth has been destroyed, and then man goes back to meet his maker for eternity, we also find out in the book of Revelation that there is a lot of music, worship, and praise going on uh, for eternity. So I'm trying to get all of the singers and musicians to know that they are not second-class citizens. The reason that God gave them the gift of music might be an indication that he wants to receive that gift at some later time, and he's using earth 
for us to perfect it and for us to get it ready for him. So that's kind of the premise of the whole book. Well, I look forward to reading that book. Thank you so much for being on the show. And Mr. Thank Perry Wynn Hunt, you're welcome, yes. Dr. Cross. I really do appreciate you being here. And Mr. Thank you so very much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. And again, if you have a question for our guest and you would like more information on how you can support our efforts, please email me at the read, read, read 1619 at gmail.com and I will return your uh, email as soon as possible. But Mr. Perry Wan Hunt, I'm not going to let you get away without answering my question. And that one question that I want you to answer is, what book do, would you suggest students read to broaden their view of the world? Um, there's, there's one book, um, The Narration and the Life of Frederick Douglass, written in his own words about his life how he uh, escaped from slavery, and how he became uh, a free citizen uh, after he escaped from slavery and became free. And then uh, also there's some the reading material on two other people. I don't think there's a book on them, but uh, Dr. Cross has mentioned about the, um, about the mailman and and it came to man, uh, Mary Fields, a lady born in Centerville, Tennessee. She was called Six Gun Mary. I mean, she carried guns, and she delivered a mail back in the 1800s. Her name was Mary Fields, and um, she chewed tobacco and everything a man done, and she delivered a mail like like the Pony Express type mail. And she done that out west, and she died in I think Montana. And you need to read about her, and you can find all on the internet on her. And Carrie House is another lady that I want people to read about. That you know, I mean, it's can rise and rise. They got a um, um, exhibit named after her at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, because she's from Nashville. She the one that first spoke about reparations for for uh, African American people, and that came to knowledge when Raymond Winbush was in Nashville at uh, Fish University. He's now at Morgan State, and anything that he's uh, written, I advise people to read about him because he he written a lot of good work too. That's Raymond Winbush, and also. Um, Dr. Neely Fully Jr. and and that that is a book that everybody needs to read too. So you can find them all, and that's probably on people. Amazon. Right. Yeah, Amazon. You can find them all probably on Amazon. Uh, I've learned yes. so much tonight, this morning from listening. Well, this show is being pre-recorded, so I've learned so much just by being here and listening to both of my guests today. It's been a joy and a privilege to be in their presence, and I look forward to working with them in the future. And 
hearing more from them. And I'm looking forward to reading your book, Dr. Cross. And I'm Thank looking you. forward to getting involved with you, Mr. Perry Wynn, and establishing your museum. When do you expect you. the museum to open, uh, Mr. Perry Wynn? Well, I'm looking at I'm looking at starting the exhibit on November thirtieth. I don't right now I'm I'm looking at two colleges that can host a exhibit to I get the building a physical building uh put in place, but exhibit some museum pieces I wanna do it at I'm looking at Columbia State Community College in Columbia, Tennessee and Modern Message College in uh Pulaski, Pulaski Tennessee. It's a United it's United Methodist um, College in Pulaski, Tennessee, and um, they do a lot of things having to do with Native American research and African American research. So I'm looking to to work with them, and and I I would have to work with the I'd be working with the United Methodist Church, and okay. uh, Dr. Tony Moten Young is uh, also a member of the. Uh, United Methodist Church, so I'll be getting her input on that too. But that's where I hope to start. And it'll be running from November 30th to April the 9th, and hopefully I'll start another um, exhibit after that sometime in May to go to September. And do you have a name for your museum yet? Oh, um, it's the, okay, Western... Highland Rim Geoscience Museum at Southport. Southport is a little community between Coloca and Mount Pleasant, and it's where um, it's where also where the U.S. Colored Troop was stationed at, and also where uh, they made they took ammunition made ammunition out of the out of the mountains like not the, the valley like, and mm-hmm. saw Peter out of the cave to make ammunition for the Union soldier military, and also the U.S. Colored Troops were stationed there, and also uh, troops from Pennsylvania, Union soldiers from Pennsylvania, was stationed in in there, and it was because the the topography of the land, that's the topography of the land, is valley land like, and it was it was familiar to the troops, uh, black and white troops that came out of um, uh, Pennsylvania to the south, and that, that area was just ideal for them because they, they were familiar with it. So Tennessee had valleys that was was uh, pretty familiar to the, the western New York all the way down to Alabama, the Appalachian Mountain region, and, and that is, that's something, that's a research on that. I'm doing some research on that. That's probably why the, the, the north was successful in winning the war. Because they used the the valley, the territory of the valley from New York, upstate New York, all the way down to Alabama, the Cumberland Valley and the rivers, and mm-hmm. that was one of the decisive valley that why the the North was able to win because Tennessee fought on both sides, North and South, and okay. it was a good training area. Well, thank you so much for that history, uh, and I really look forward to your museum. And thank we're going to take we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and end the show. 
Hi, my name is Jeru Williams. I'm a historian, and here's what you need to know in order to sound smart about women gaining the right to vote. From the time of the American Revolution through 1920, women fought to attain the same social, political, and economic status in the United States as men. In 1920, women in the United States won the right to vote by virtue of the passage of the 19th Amendment. But the struggle to attain that right was a long one, fraught with violence, political turmoil, and social upheaval. Many of the leaders of the women's suffragist movement actually got their start in the abolitionist movement and other social reform movements in the 1830s and the 1840s. The Civil War and Reconstruction proved to be a critical moment for women pushing for the right to vote in the United States. In the aftermath of the Civil War, Congress committed itself to ensuring the right to vote for African-American men through the passage of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment stated that the right to vote could not be abridged or denied based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It, however, said nothing about gender. By the turn of the century, more militant and radical voices were working their way into the fight for women's rights. Alice Paul, for instance, pushed for the adoption of an Equal Rights Amendment. One of the ways that Paul and her supporters sought to dramatize the issues associated with women's suffrage was to stage massive parades. One that they conducted on March 3, 1913, was done so to coincide with the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson. The women hoped that this would dramatize the denial of a basic civil right to women. Authorities often brutally suppressed female suffragists who employed such tactics. Alice Paul was once placed in solitary confinement and beaten because of a picket she staged at the White House. The brutal treatment of female suffragists actually helped to strengthen public support for the movement. And in 1918, President Woodrow Wilson announced his own support for women winning the right to vote. The denial of more than half of the United States population to participate in the political process at one time was damning to American democracy. In 1920, that changed, and the 19th Amendment was a revolution in American politics. 1920 is a banner year and a milestone in American democracy for what it accomplished for women and what it represents for those who are marginalized in American society, even today. People been saying to your friends, get a different face. And posting on their feed, they're super ugly. The things they say to them online are cruel and they're not true. So tell your friend, I'll stand up for you. Don't worry, I know what to do. Know someone being bullied online? You can be a witness and make a difference by letting the world know it isn't cool. And by letting your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome back to Read, Read, Read with your host, Joanne Burrell, on the CWR Talk Network. Well, we've reached the end of the show. The word of the day is unity. The state of being united or joined as a whole. Harmony, togetherness, solidarity, peace. Thank you, Mr. Edwards, CEO and Director of the CWR Talk Network. Thank you, Dr. Cross, for being here. 
and sharing your knowledge and wisdom and helping us to help our community. And thank you, Mr. Perry Wynn Hunt, historian and librarian, and being here today sharing your wisdom in history. And to everyone who took the time out of their busy schedules to listen to the Read, Read, Read radio show. Remember, mentoring is a brain to pick and an ear to listen and a push in the right direction. It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice to somebody. Thank you, everyone. Be safe, and I look forward to being with you on the next Read, 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 Mentoring and Reading Show. Good night.